Last week, if you were here, we were in Luke 7. And I want to just touch on something really quick regarding that passage. Luke 7 was the passage where, if you, if you remember, it was the passage about the Pharisee who has asked Christ to dinner, and, and Christ was having dinner with this man, and a woman, a sinner, came into their midst and began to worship the Lord, really, out of gratitude. I just want to say something. And, and you remember we talked about the plate glass window. You remember that the Pharisee thought that he only damaged the window. He thought he had only damaged the window, like a little BB hole. But the woman knew she had shattered the window. And the clincher that Christ says in that passage is, but he who is forgiven little loves little. You remember that? This is the comment. Some of us have led lives, and you hear this from people who grew up in the church often. They say, well, what, what would I say? I don't have a testimony. It's some of those things, because, you know, they, they're, not, they're not able to come and say, well, you know, I used to do this, and now I don't, I do this. And so some of those same people sometimes feel like, well, then will I ever love greatly? Because I don't have all that in my past. That's the thing that the, the parable was trying to guide us toward. And I wanted to make sure that I reinforced that point one more time this week. Because the Pharisee felt like he had lived a life like many of us have, where he, had not, he didn't have a long list. He had to be forgiven very little. He didn't understand that his smallest sin still damaged the window and caused it to be replaced, and the cost to replace it, whether it was the little tiny hole or whether it was shattered, was the same. Too many of us don't realize how the, the smallest sin in comparison to God's holiness is equivalent to the greatest sin. Adam only broke one commandment. And that commandment separated his intimate fellowship with the Lord. And it separated our intimate fellowship with the Lord. We are all great sinners who have all been forgiven greatly. And to realize how great our sin is, we really have to realize how holy God is. If you are someone who says, I don't have all that in my background, will I ever love greatly? What you need to do is realize how great the Lord is, how majestic his holiness is. And in that, you understand that your little BB hole costs as much to repair as the shattered window did. And that the Lord's death was required for your sins as much as for the great sinner's sins. I just wanted to make that statement, kind of a carryover. I actually, quite honestly, I woke up at 2.30 this morning thinking about that. And I thought, why am I thinking about this? And I thought, I better put it in the sermon. Okay, there we go. Who has ever lost anything of value? One time, I, I often, and I'm kind of learning not to do this, I often would take my ring off and I'll play with it on my fingers, you know. One time, I was doing that while I was watching TV, a football game or something, and my ring fell off. So I went down to get it, and it went into the black hole. That black hole is that space between the cushions that goes down into the depths, the abyss. And I could not get it out. So I spent the rest of the night taking apart the chair to get my wedding ring back out. <laughs> oh, there's my wife. Hi, hon. Yeah, very good. I'm thinking, who was that? I didn't know she was here. Okay. Yes. 
Yes. I'll be honest, I was trying to get it done before she came home. <laughs> you know, we lose things, and we lose things of value, and we go to lengths to find them. Do we not? Do we not? That's right. Turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. That's where we're going to be today. Luke 15. And Luke 15 is a whole chapter on lost things. The larger portion of the chapter contains one of the most loved and best known of Jesus' parables. It's the parable of the prodigal son. That particular parable, and it's one of those parables that has made it into the, the typical language. You know, we've all, it's not uncommon to hear people talk about the prodigal. In the church and out of the church. And this, this particular parable is considered the, the crown and the pearl of all parables. The gospel within the gospel. Charles Dickens said it was the finest short story ever written. One theologian has suggested that it is, is the parable, it is the parable of the four verbs. Lose, seek, found, rejoice. And their theme appears, at least initially, to be on the lost and the found. But the theme that is re- we're really familiar with is that one. It is John Newton brought to everyone, everyone knows it. I was lost, but now I'm found. It is the most sung hymn in the world. It might be one of the most known songs in the world. You know, and that statement is key to that story of John Newton and his own salvation. It's key to that song. That's what we all know is I was lost, but now I'm found. And so in this particular passage, let's read in verses 1 through 3, first of all. Because verses 1 through 3 set the context for everything we're reading. And what's really interesting is verses 1 through 3 set the context for so many of the Lord's parables. So it just says this. Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. We've read this before, have we not? We've read this whole thing about sinners and tax collectors before. We read it last week because that Pharisee said, if he knew, if this Jesus knew who that woman was, then he wouldn't be, he wouldn't be with her. He wouldn't let her touch her. If he knew that she was a sinner, he wouldn't let this happen. But Jesus was always intentional about this. It was not a mistake that these people were hanging out with him. It was not a mistake that they were coming to him at all. And to understand the bad company that Jesus was keeping, we need to understand who sinners and tax collectors were in the context of how this Pharisee is using it. So a sinner was just not someone who was typically, they weren't axe murderers. You know, they were not someone like that all the time. Basically what they were were people, they were just everyday people who weren't religious. They didn't observe the law religiously. So that created a gap between the Pharisees and them. They are, as a matter of fact, they called them the people of the land. They had a, a term for them that meant the people of the land. They were unclean because they didn't observe the law. And being good Pharisees, they kept a distance between them and all those who were unclean. They wanted nothing to do with them. And then the tax collectors, well... That sounds bad enough already. I mean, even we have a problem with the tax collectors. Anyone from the IRS or anyone here? Never mind. All right. Some of us have a problem with the tax collectors. But in this case, it was kind of even worse because tax collectors were considered to be disloyal by most Jews. The tax collectors were typically, in this case, were Jews who had chosen to take a position with the Roman government to, to collect taxes, which were backbreaking. 
on the people, which were just was, were breaking the people into poverty. To have a Jew come to another Jew and say, give me and, and, and extract almost what wasn't there at times and then have no pity about it. As a matter of fact, more often than not, these tax collectors, these tax-collecting Jews were using this position of power and influence to gain more resources. They were very corrupt. The tax collectors were considered traitors, betrayers. You know, you think about how we look at, at traitors when we've read about them in some of our armed services and the reaction that people have toward those who are traitors. Then you can begin to understand just a little bit maybe, of the way that these people felt about the tax collectors. Here he is, he's saying, that man hangs out with these sinners, the unclean people, and these betrayers who are also unclean. Reconsider the accusation of the Pharisee. This man hangs out and eats with traitors, unreligious, dirty people. This is the same thing that we had in Luke 7. And then listen to the Lord's response. He says this, and it just starts very simply in verse 3. He knew what they were thinking, and he says, and he began to tell them a parable. What's really interesting, let's read verses 4 through 10 here. Because this parable, most people think of the parable of the prodigal son as being a parable by itself. But really, the whole chapter is a parable with three stages in it. He is teaching the same point with every single story, whether it's the lost coin, the lost sheep, or the lost son. He is teaching the same point. And so he starts out, and he does this. He, he reads in verses 4 through 10, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And I tell you, In the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Verse 8. Or what woman, or what woman if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I love the way he brings the listeners into the story. He goes, What man among you? Or what woman? He immediately is trying to grab their attention. The Lord was a master teacher. And what he's chosen to do, he says, Okay, Which of you, which of you would not do likewise? And he compares losing one against many and the sheep. He compares he lost one, he had others. And then in the coin, he does the same thing. He lost one coin, although they had ten. And in both of those cases, you see the verbs lost, seek, find, rejoice. In both of those cases, you see it happening there. And the emphasis that that which was lost must be found. It's important. The one is important. It's not enough that I have 99 others. It's not enough that I have 10 others. But that one has value. I'll leave all the 99 to find that one. 
I'll step away from the, the ten, and I'll search everywhere to find the one. And when it's found, interestingly enough, in both of the, if, if I'm not mistaken, this is just a thought that's occurring to me, in both the sheep and the coin, he calls all of his friends to rejoice, but it also says the angels rejoice as well. We know that the angels are not rejoicing over a sheep because there's kajillions of them. Nor are those angels rejoicing over silver, which will burn. The emphasis is not about things and animals. It's about people. And it is that which is what the angels would rejoice over. Now to verse 11. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it. We're going to work our way through it together here. If you know the story, the son comes to the father. He's a rich man. And he comes and he's the younger son. And he comes to the father and he says, I am due something from you, and I would like it now. I would like for you to give it to me now. I am due a certain part of your wealth and your land, and I would like it now. In the context of Jewish culture, that is true. The young man did have something coming to him, but he didn't have it coming to him until his father was dead. So what is the message the son just sent to the father? I wish you were dead. Because I want what you have, which is mine, more than I want you. Can I have it? And the father, in an amazing act of grace, and keep in mind the definition of grace throughout the story. Grace is the unmerited favor. Grace means I give you something that you did not deserve. And we see in this act unmerited favor toward this young man. He didn't deserve it. The father was still alive. The father was still healthy. And yet, in an amazing act of grace, he gave that son what he had asked for. Knowing full well, like parents do, what was going to happen to it. Because as you go on to the story, he goes and he takes everything. He cashes the property in. You get this implication in one of the verses there. He takes the property. He says that also he has more cash. He goes to a distant land, it says, which means Gentile land, which means he's no longer with the Jews. He's gone to a different land, which is anathema among the culture of the time. You don't go to the others. You stay among us. He goes to the others. He goes to a distant country. He goes to a Gentile nation where he doesn't sound like he does much with that money, but parties. As a matter of fact, his brother even states and says this much, that he spent it on whores, and he blew it all. So he goes to work for someone. The only job he gets, catch this, he's a Jew, bad Jew as it is, but he's a Jew, and he ends up feeding the pigs. He went from Gentiles to pigs. He's going downhill fast. And then eventually, he does not even have enough for himself to eat, so he's wrestling with the pigs for what they're eating. This is a young man who has hit the very bottom. So what does he do? He comes to himself one day and he says, you know what? Even my father's most lowest servant has it better than I have. I can't stand this any longer. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to say, look, I know what I've done. I know that I took everything. I know that I squandered it. I know that I hurt you. 
and I'm asking you, just take me back as a servant. Just, just put me out in the barn. Just take me back as a servant. I don't deserve to be a son any longer. And he starts on his way home. And imagine it, if you will. Just imagine it. He starts on his way home. And as he's trudging along, and you, can you imagine what he looks like? I, I mean, you just have to believe. Here is a guy who pulled himself up out of the pig pen, out of the pigsty, wrestling with pigs for food, and he's trudging his way home. And he's been on, he went to a distant land. It must have been some sort of trip. And he's trudging his way home, and he's making his way home. And I don't think that he was dressed in any particular way that was like homecoming type of dress. I think he pulled himself up out of filth and only got filthier as he trudged on his way home. And it says, at a distance, at a distance, his father saw him. At a distance, his father saw him. Note that. Right here is a great, great statement that Gary Enrig, a pastor, um, says, There is often more truth in the pig pen of consequences than in the banquet halls of revelry. Consequences, so often, are a much better teacher than anything else we can suffer. Some of us often say, why? Why is this happening to me? Because consequences are such a good teacher. And the Lord loves us so much that he wants to teach us things so well. And so the Lord gave this young man all the leash he wanted. He wrapped it around the pole and stood out there and yelped. And in his graciousness, the Lord went out, cut the leash, and gave him a new one to start over with again. The consequences of what this young man was teaching him a lesson he should have learned and known before he left home. So here he is. The passage says, and the sun is too far away. This, this is another quote by Enrique. He says, the sun is too far away to express his repentance, but already the Father's grace is present. The sun was too far away. Matter of fact, if you look at the text, it even says that, that, that the, son, the Father ran to him. This is not a child who is dead to him, as I know some of my Jewish friends have experienced. This is not a child who is dead to him. This is a child who is very much alive. This is a child who this man still has a vibrant, compelling love for. So much so that when he saw him at a distance, the very next line says, he ran. He ran. If you look it up in the Greek, it still says, he ran. He ran. Now, again, there's so much about the culture that is tied up into these passages that tell us a lot more about it as we understand it. But in this culture, a dignified landowner, a dignified older man never ran. But his love for his son overcame dignity and concern for the community's opinion. His love for the son overcame his dignity And what anyone else would have thought about him as they saw him run down the road toward that filthy man coming up it. The son confesses, but it appears to be completely ignored. And what does the father say? 
He says in verses 22, quickly. Now, this is not like, you know, let's think about this. What should we do? He says immediately, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring out the fatted calf and kill it and let's eat it and let's have a party. Party. Right, Owen? Party. That's right. Let's have a party. The best robe was his robe. He says, bring out my best robe, the one that I wear to special events. Put it on him. Put a ring on him. It signifies authority. Put shoes on him. It signifies freedom. All the servants were barefooted. This man is not going to be a servant. This is my son. And then the fatted calf, that's the one that they've set aside, and they're feeding it right because there's going to be a time and a place when there's going to be something that happens that we want to observe. We want to party. We want to celebrate. And now the Father has said, the one who came and took everything that was his and said, I consider you dead. I want what's mine. The one who went and defiled himself in another country. The one who went and slept it away with whores. The one who went and spent his time with pigs. The one who ate what the pigs ate. That one we're going to party for because he's my son. That one we're going to party for because he's my son. There is so much in this parable. But that right there is the gist of the parable. That the Father's love for all humanity extends so far that he would do the unthinkable. And that in this culture and in this parable, the unthinkable was that he would run. But in the context of what's real, in the context of the world, in the context of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, the unthinkable was that he would find a solution that was his own son. And that he did not hold it back, but he sent him into the world, and he says, this is my only son. I am greatly pleased in him. And he says, but he will do the unthinkable. And he will die for the sins are the ones who said, I don't care about you. I want what I want more than what you want. Give me what's mine. Give me what's mine. And so just as this father put the coat and the ring and the shoes and the fatted calf out for him, our heavenly father took his own son and put him on a cross to die for yours and my sins. And so while this passage talks about a a woman looking for a coin, a shepherd looking for sheep, and a father looking for a son, it's really talking about a heavenly father who has gone to great lengths to seek those who are lost and paid a great penalty to bring those who are lost into relationship with himself again. That's what this parable is highlighting the most. But there are other themes through it that we often bring out. Let's acknowledge those first of all. First of all, one thing is this. There are many of us who are in this room who are wondering if God still loves us because of what we've done. And if this parable doesn't say it, many others would, but he loves you regardless of what you've done. And he still wants to put the coat on you, the ring, the shoes, and celebrate you no matter what you've done. His love is that great. It extends beyond anything you could have ever, ever, ever done. Beyond anything that you are, that you think you are, beyond anything you've ever done, beyond anything you will ever do, he is seeking you. And he wants to rejoice over you coming back to him. 
There is this negative side to the parable that we find in our churches all the time. And any time the Lord is teaching to the Pharisees, he's, he is addressing them. Matter of fact, what he's really intending, and this is what the Scripture does for us, he's, he's telling this parable because what he wants to do is in the pages of the Bible, it's almost like as we flip the page, we find there's a mirror there, and we see ourselves in the story. We see ourselves in the text. And this is what he's doing in this particular parable to the Pharisees. And what he's saying is, you're in this, Pharisee, you're in this story as well. He says, all right, I want you to see. He says, you're in this story as well. You're in this painting. You're in this picture. Let me show it to you. And you can barely, barely see it. But here is Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. And in it, you very easily see a father who has a son who is, who is, it is obvious. He's fallen at his father's feet in sorrow and in grief. And you have these, these, onlookers over here. But if the painting and the lighting was a little bit better, you'd see that right there, there's another face deep in the back of the photograph, in the painting. And this face back here is the older brother. He's not in the middle of the, of the painting celebrating, is he? Because the older brother is standing back, evaluating. The older brother is standing back and saying, I never got that. Matter of fact, the passage even says that the brother will not even come into the house. And so the father has to go out. Now the father has had disgrace and dishonor cast upon him by the younger son and now by the older son. And Christ's point is this, that the Pharisees are the older son. But think about this. He is still father to both. And that unmerited favor, that unmerited grace, that grace, that love, he extends to both of them. To both of them. One author said that the problem with the parable, this part of the parable about the two sons, is that neither of them knew the father's heart. If the younger son had known the father's heart, he would have known any time he could have come home and been welcomed back. That he didn't have to have a speech, that he didn't have to have he didn't have to come back as a servant or a slave in the father's house, that he could come back as a son. And the older son, if he had known the father's heart, would have known that that father was still looking for that younger son and would have known that if that younger son had ever showed up, that he would be celebrated. But they didn't know the father's heart. The author in the reading that I was doing this week said that when we know this Father's heart, we will appreciate and love him. Just like the woman did last week in a way that pours ourselves out to him. In a way that, just like the Father was undignified 
about running. We will lose our, our pride. We will lose all that we think is important about us to be at the feet of the Father, to be at the feet of the Savior, just like the woman was last week in, in, in Luke 7. Realizing that we are all the younger son and we are all the older son. And he loves us all equally and yearns to call us in to the house, to the celebration. Yearns to call us all into the house, to the celebration of his great, lavishing, wildly extravagant love for no one who deserves it, but for everyone who gets it because he extends it to everyone.